The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. continuing in our series in Acts, I confess to you that I came upon this short passage at the end of Acts 12 and thought, well, it's Communion Sunday. I'm not sure that this fits. But when I began to think and look over the passage and study it a bit, I began to realize it really does fit any consideration of coming to the Lord's table. Listen as I read Acts 12, the end of the chapter, beginning at verse 20. I just remind you that this is right upon the heels of James, the brother of John, being killed, Peter being captured and then released miraculously by the Lord uh, from the attempt to kill him. And Peter is now free. Herod is very unhappy about that, of course, and even killed the guards that were responsible. Here's what we read in God's Word. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John whose other name was Mark. This is God's Word. A business study was done a number of years ago, I think almost 10 years ago, by an individual who wanted to understand what it was about people that ran the top American corporations, the really great companies. What made them different from those who might head up merely good companies? And he studied these CEOs and found, of course, that they were all highly driven, intelligent individuals, disciplined. They knew when to take risks. They had certain behaviors that anybody would recognize as good for business. But what he began to find as he examined the leaders who were at the very apex of this world, the the really top-performing companies of all, was that people who knew these CEOs best said about them, why, he's very unpretentious. She's modest. They never seek to be on the pedestal. That was rather surprising because I suppose some people think the top business leaders are all Donald Trumps who demand the attention and bluster and show their arrogance at every turn. 
but there was found to be a definite correlation between personal humility and top corporate leadership. Rather a surprise. Well, I say to you that coming to grips with the vast distance between your natural self-exalting pride and a Christ-like self-abasing humility, which is best learned at the cross of Jesus, coming to grips with the difference between those two things is a core requirement for a Christian disciple. Pride is the most deadly obstacle to your dwelling in a continual state of favor with God. Pride is perilous. Pride is toxic. Pride destroys Christians. On this Communion Sunday, we look at Acts 12, 20 and following, a, a rather bizarre story, and at least the details of the death of Herod Agrippa I. And it would be easy, as I said a moment ago, to ask, what does that story have to do with my possibility of coming to the table of the Lord's Supper? It seems like it doesn't have anything to do with it. And yet, if you would consider the foundational theme of destructive human pride which brought Herod down, I believe you would see there's something very apropos for every one of us as we think about communion with the Lord. At the opening of Acts 12, Herod was the tyrant in charge. He was answerable to Rome. His power was somewhat limited, but he could get away with an awful lot before Rome would come down upon him. And uh, here he was arresting apostles at will. He killed James. He didn't ask anybody's permission to do that. And he saw that the people liked that and applauded that, so he said, I'll do it again. And he put Peter, the chief of all the apostles, in prison and intended, and notice you could look back to what we saw last time, that he was waiting for the Passover season to come to a conclusion so that he could probably execute Peter at the prime opportunity when it would be seen and and noticed by the most people because he wanted their approval. Well, here's a man seeming to run amok against the gospel. And yet, by the end of the chapter, everything is absolutely changed. The circumstances reverse themselves. He's stricken by a deadly disease, or he had the disease before, but it came to a climax in his body. And here's Herod in his supreme splendor, Right when the band is playing Hail to the Chief and he's in his greatest glory, he goes down, doubled in pain, and we know from independent accounts of his, of his own history that he died within a few days of this incident. This is certainly a warning to anyone who rules over other people, whether President of the United States, legislator, magistrate, police chief, mayor, justice in a court, You are given authority over people to exercise it responsibly. And you will owe an accounting to God if you exercise it poorly. But to all of us comes a lesson from this about the fatal presumptions of pride, even in just a general way. John Stott, the commentator, has a great word about uh, that just states, as he so often does very concisely, what's going on in this chapter 12 of Acts. He says, at the beginning of the chapter, Herod is on the rampage. James is dead. Peter's in prison. Herod is bloated by others' applause. But then as the chapter ends, Stott writes, Herod is dead. 
Peter is free, and the word of God is triumphing across the land. What a reversal in the space of two dozen verses of one chapter of Scripture. And it tells us, let any man or woman rise up in their own self-inflated glory or will and put themselves too high above other men. They are in danger of colliding with God who is the most high and who occupies the place of unique sovereignty and supremacy. It seems as if the providence of God allowed this pompous man to run his course for a while, to inflate his egotistical balloon as far as he could so that he would suffer a more devastating downfall than Humpty Dumpty ever dreamed of. Herod rose in human glory, and he went down in a blaze of defeat. It was like in this chapter, if you say the church was contending against the power of Herod, you say, well, what do you mean the church contending against the power of Herod? That's like a cat's paw extended to fight a lion. But it's the lion that goes down, not the cat's paw, because it was the power of God on the side of the church. And so in the first place today, we notice this point. Pride is a most deadly obstacle to abiding in the favor of God. Pride is a most deadly obstacle to abiding in the favor of God. First, I would just briefly remind you that the Bible has much to say generally about dangers of pride. We all, we don't have to be, you know, kings of Judea to have proud ways of advancing ourselves and pressing our own will and seeking advantage for ourselves or thinking ourselves to be more important than other people. Our proper self-estimate puts us more in Herod's camp than in Christ's camp if we are not changed by Christ, that is. One scripture that relates is Isaiah fourteen thirteen, a mysterious chapter which we believe prophetically while it is addressed to a human ruler seems to speak as well to Satan himself in his original rebellion against the Lord God. Lucifer is being indicted in Isaiah 14 as God says to the fallen angel, Satan, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will set my throne on high. That was the original sin before Adam and Eve. Before there was any other sin, there was this created being created to give glory to God who said, no, I'll give glory to me. And that's where Satan comes from. The decision that he would glorify himself and not God. Proverbs is a book with many words to say about pride, all negative. Proverbs 6, 16 talks about the Lord hating mankind's so-called haughty eyes. Proverbs 8.13 has the Lord say, I hate pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16.18 could have been spoken directly to Herod because it says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Jump all the way into the New Testament. James 4.6 announces in four words, God opposes the proud. The proud are on a course against God. Because to vaunt yourself, to promote yourself ahead of God 
is the fundamental sin of all sins. John Calvin said, man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has first contemplated the face of God in his word, and then he comes down from such a contemplation to look into himself. You see what Calvin was saying? Until we look at what the Scripture says about the glory, the splendor, the sovereignty of God, and then we turn our gaze on ourselves, then only do we begin to really understand what poor and small creatures we actually are. The brilliant light of God's holiness and uniqueness and majesty casts shadows on all our faults. Jonathan Edwards saw these things, expressed them well when he said, Pride is the worst viper in the human heart and the great disturber of the soul's peace and of all communion with Christ. And then he got personal and said, when pride is at work in me, oh, what a foolish, miserable, blind, deceived, and low creature I am. Edwards saw pride as his great problem. Now, That's just some general background on the subject, which we don't have a lot of time to develop more today. But turn for a moment to what's said here in this text, the actual event that happened there in Caesarea to Herod Agrippa I. This king was visiting Caesarea, the port city, the Roman city on on the coast of the Mediterranean. He was going there. It's interesting to see why he was going. People from two cities which were kind of like independent city-states, were coming to him with a plea trying to make a peace treaty with him because there'd been some animosity. And these cities realized they needed Herod for an ally. They, they had gotten him upset. It says he was angry. And they realized that in order to have food and trade goods and so on, they needed an alliance with Herod. So, so they're coming seeking to appease Herod. Now, one of the things we know is that the historian Josephus, outside the Bible, Josephus is a historian who writes right at this time, and he has accounts of many things that parallel the Bible, and he has an exact account of this day's event, saying that Herod came into the Colosseum at Caesarea. If you've visited the Holy Land, there's a good chance you've sat in that Colosseum. I have. It's a, it's a remaining old Colosseum there that you can sit in and see the Mediterranean Sea there. Herod came there onto the stage. There was a throne set up that he would address these delegates. I don't know how many people were there, but Josephus fills in some more details that aren't in our text and says that he wore a robe with silver threads. Now, whether that meant the actual metal silver was somehow woven into the robe, but the robe gleamed in the morning sun. Now, that was surely staged. That wasn't an accident. Herod was there to impress people. He knew the time of day, probably, that the sun would strike the spot where his throne would be and how impressive he would look. And so he set that up, and there he was, looking as impressive as a man could make, making a speech that no doubt was domineering and telling these people how he was actually in charge, and they'd better obey him, and they'd better fall into line and and behave themselves. And these folks, knowing they needed Herod, we hear they were currying his favor, and so they cried out that which was sounds almost ridiculous. They heard him speak and said, Oh, it's the voice of a God. Why, he's hardly a man. He's a God. Absurd. 
But nevertheless, because Herod accepted that, soaked that up and said, yeah, that sounds good. God struck him, and within days he died. We have this, every little boy loves this text, by the way. You know, somebody eaten by worms? What does that mean? We think it means that Luke, who was the ever-observant physician, somehow understood the reports that had gone out after his death that he apparently died from internal parasites, which were very common in those days of poor sanitation. A lot of people had tapeworms or other parasites. And Josephus' account says Herod was in agonizing abdominal pain for five days from this incident until he actually died. And Luke, the doctor, says, eaten by worms. Not a very nice way to go. But pride is the deadly obstacle to living within the favor of God. And here we just have an extreme example. Well, secondly, today, our time is short, but I want you to look at the Scripture's contention then that humility, on the other hand, is the best measure of real likeness to Christ. Where would you find somebody who was in every way the reverse of Herod Agrippa in his play at human glory here? Well, Jesus, who was the son of the highest God. We've just been through the Christmas season talking about the incarnation. He who came from on high to the lowliest place, not just a feed stall in a stable, but being found in the form of a man, God in the form of a man. Jesus is the one who said to us, if you would be great among your fellow human beings, you must be their servant and the slave of all. Do you want to be great? Herod didn't understand how to do it. In other words, Jesus said, Herod's way will never work. Do you want to be great? You must. He didn't say you might try this way. He said, you must do what I'm doing. Be the servant of all. Our material world celebrates self-sufficiency, self-indulgence, self-glorification. You're going to see one of the worst examples of it spread on your television later today. Understand, please, I love football. I watch football. My team has been to the Super Bowl and lost four times. So I can be a critic. But you will not see anywhere in American society a more bloated, ridiculous celebration of materialism and self-glorification anywhere than you will see on your television tonight. I could go on a long time. Why do you get $5 million a year for the ability to reach over your head, catch a football, and cross the goal line 10 times every season? Why doesn't our society celebrate teachers and nurses and missionaries and workers among the poor the way they celebrate our athletes who do their self-glorifying dance in the end zone? Sorry, folks. All I can think of is Herod Agrippa. But I don't wish intestinal worms on any football player. Philippians 2 tells us the way of it. Go read that. Philippians 2, 5 and following. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God. But he made himself nothing. One of the most remarkable statements in all the Bible, the son of the highest became the servant dwelling in the lowest 
He who had every prerogative over legions of angels, whose glory and majesty could not have been looked upon if we had seen him in the form that he was. He came and served and died for people that to him in comparative worthiness were so much pond scum. Folks, that's all we were, bacteria, before the glory of Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that our daily foe as Christians is to humble ourselves because pride is our foe? Because pride, in one way or another, not exactly like Herod, I don't expect to see any of you in silver clothing giving great orations and taking the glory due to God, but pride is there for all of us in different ways. And humility is the proof that Christ dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. I want to leave you with some practical things here in the last five minutes. Some practical ways to cultivate the humility of Christ. Now, when I say this, you know, I'm not speaking to the worldly person among us. I'm speaking to those who are reborn by faith in Jesus Christ, who are his disciples, because you have his Holy Spirit within you, and you have the ability to do these things. The worldly man or woman does not. I'd ask you this, first of all, dwell often upon the wonders of the cross. Nothing in the whole universe cuts down pride like the cross. You can't remain inflated with a big idea of yourself beside the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, There is only one thing I know of that crushes the old rebellious me to the ground and humiliates me. That is to study the Son of God as he went to his cross. The cross never flatters me. It never builds me up. It brings me down. And I can only approach it with a bowed head and a broken spirit. Study the cross. Another practical thing is to study the doctrines of God's sovereign grace in Scripture. The doctrines like election and irresistible grace and justification, these things leave us no room to congratulate ourselves because we see that they are God planning and accomplishing salvation. And that's why so many people dislike these doctrines to the point of hatred because they know that they put a lance in their pride and they say, you didn't cause your salvation. You didn't do it. You didn't plan it. Lest you think those are Presbyterian doctrines, friends, I'll quote Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher of the last century, actually the 19th century. Spurgeon said, If God had not chosen me, I would never have chosen him. He must have chosen me before I was ever born because he never would have done so after he saw my behavior from childhood to adulthood. That's Spurgeon. And he went on and said, he must have elected me for reasons unknown to myself, for I discover in myself no cause for him to set his special love on me. Study the doctrines of sovereign grace. They will introduce you to humility. Thirdly, a practical exercise for daily devotion. Make sure you deliberately express thanks to God for particular blessings every single day. Thankfulness is a soil in which the plant of pride does not grow. When you're thankful, you're looking to your benefactor, not to yourself. And finally this, 
quickly and sincerely hand off praises you do receive for your talents or gifts or performance and hand it off as quickly as you can, as if it was a kind of hot potato when somebody comes and says, oh, what a wonderful cello player you are. Well, that's fine. Say thank you. But maybe you could say, I give the glory to God. And if you don't say it to the other person, say it to yourself right away. J.S. Bach composed his magnificent music. He was a genius. His music was beautiful. And I don't know if he did it with every single piece, but with many pieces of his music, we know he put the Latin phrase at the end, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone. So at least those who would perform his music after him would know who was being credited. Transfer the credit people give to you. Transfer it quickly. I love the little saying. It's funny, but it has a good point in it. A man said once, don't let a compliment become a chicken that roosts too long in your hair. It will lay eggs that break all over your face. (laughs) Pass the credit to God. And seriously, folks, I can never come to the Lord's table without knowing that I have business to do with the demon of pride that dwells in me. Proud people are so self-sufficient, they won't usually tremble before. I don't think Herod Agrippa ever trembled at anyone's might. Maybe Caesar. That's about it. But listen as I close to Isaiah 66, 2, that says this. Here is the one, the Lord says, here is the one upon whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my every word. Our Father, I ask today as we come to this table, representing to us the sacrifice of Jesus at his cross, we would come lowly, humbly, disavowing self, but yet not remain here broken in pieces. Will you raise us from our humility? Show us the joy and the wonder of your gift of eternal life and forgiveness that you give us in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.